I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Derash Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derash Chai Experiment, the show where we allow scripture to lead our study, and in so doing, we discover whole new ways of relating to the God of the Bible. Well, we are nearly there. Three years of pouring over the Torah's every word and thought and idea is nearly completed, and what a journey it has been. Each of the books of the Torah tells us a bit of the story of us, of humans. Not simply stories of history, but of the human path towards God, and God's path for our redemption. And these stories provide a pattern and warnings of what to watch for along the trajectory of our lives as we draw closer to the Most High God of Israel. You see, these stories are not just about humans of long ago. These stories also tell our own stories. Our individual struggles and victories are contained within these pages. In Genesis, the history of God and Israel was recounted. It began with the choosing of a single man who became a single people group, through which Hashem could begin to train us as humans into the fullness of just what it means to be human as He designed us to be. Walking and approaching the world as His image, changing history for the better and standing in the face of oppression and persecution. And this man, this man could be any one of us, living in the world, then called out of the world and into relationship with God, promised a place that will be ours, a place of prosperity and peace, promised that if we make this change in our lives, then we will get to be a participant in what God is doing to make this world a better place to live for everyone. We must simply be true to what he tells us to do, even if it means the ultimate sacrifice, even if it means losing the things that you had your heart set on, even if it means imprisonment or false charges, even if it means persecution to the point of death. In Exodus, the story is continued. The redemption of the people from slavery and oppression towards freedom and release. And when we see the pattern, we recognize that this release from oppression towards freedom includes a time of doing without, without the goods of the world, without the support of those outside your community. A time when our world seems to fall apart and we lose the things closest to us as they're taken from us. A wilderness experience that shatters our perception of the world. But this experience is one that also accompanies a personal shift towards the God of the universe. We learn about Him and His nature as He walks with us through this difficult time, providing for our every need and nothing more. And it is in this wilderness that we experience the things of growth and strength. In Leviticus, we encounter the first thing that the wilderness teaches us, the ways of relationship with our God, how to worship, how to honor, how to love Him and recognize our rightful place in His presence, how to live out the holiness that He grants us through His presence, and how to bear His image before others. In Numbers, the focus shifts from God's nature to our own nature. And this can be one of the hardest lessons of the wilderness, because it is in the wilderness that we learn our own tendency towards treachery and the things that drive us away from God and His ways. Our fleshly lusts, desires, and greed for more, unsatisfied with simply living life, needing experiences of pleasure to go along with life. We discover our pride in our own status and ability, and we discover that our own ability is worthless in the face of overwhelming odds, and our pride is painfully shattered. We seek to act in our own power to accomplish what we designate as good, and when we fail, or when we're faced with more than we can handle, we then turn to fear of what might happen, the things that might be overwhelming our minds and causing us to become useless and timid.
And each of these things draws us away from Hashem. They pull on our minds and tug on our emotions and they cause us to react. And in reacting according to our emotions, we will always be led away from Hashem. But here in Deuteronomy, we learn the solution. Remember, remember your history with God. Remember who you have been revealed to be and who he has been revealed to be. Remember the times that he was with you in tragedy and loss and the unknown and the way that he brought you through them. Remember the victories that he has given you as giants in your life were defeated. Remember the ways that he has taught you to live and then live by them. Remember that he is loving and he desires love from you. And the truest expression of love for him is to discern his word and then to live according to its standard. And that standard is found by discerning the underlying principles that are set forth in a series of commands. Those underlying principles including, but not limited to, justice, peace, compassion, mercy, love, patience, and life. These laws give us examples of just how to enact these principles. The Torah is a work that goes far beyond an ancient series of documents that describe ancient worship practices and laws to an ancient people. The Torah gets to the heart of man and our relationship to the God that created us. It speaks of the gospel of a kingdom that revolves around him and his ways. It speaks of faith, not just intellectual belief, but allegiance to Hashem. It speaks of grace as the gift that we receive from our patron. It speaks of justification and righteousness before our God, and it calls out very clearly that your righteousness is not your own, and God does not choose you because of your righteousness, but rather because of his love. And it reveals that love is the foundation for all that God wants of his people, love for him and love for others. The Torah truly is a magnificent collection of documents that rightfully holds a special place in our hearts and minds. And here, at the end of the Torah, we discover two things of significance. Next week, we will read of the blessing, the blessing of Moses to the twelve tribes of Israel. But this week, we read a song. A song which has been compared to a compact theology a concise retelling of all that we have read and that we can see in history and also apply to our own lives, but also a pattern for the future of not just Israel, but all mankind. A song that is truly significant. So, let's read this week's Parsha, and then let's dig into just what is so significant in the lyrics of this song and in the events surrounding its giving. Deuteronomy 31.14-32.47 And Hashem said to Moshe, See, the days have drawn near for you to die. Call Yehoshua and present yourselves in the tent of appointment, so that I command him. And Moshe and Yehoshua went and presented themselves in the tent of appointment. And Hashem appeared at the tent in the column of a cloud, and the column of a cloud stood above the door of the tent. And Hashem said to Moshe, See, you are about to sleep with your fathers, and this people shall rise and whore after the mighty ones of the strangers of the land, in the midst of which they shall enter and forsake me, and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my displeasure shall burn against them in that day, and I shall forsake them, and hide my face from them, and they shall be consumed, and many evils and distresses shall come upon them, and it shall be said in that day, Is it not because our Elohim is not in our midst that these evils have come upon us? And I shall certainly hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done, for they shall turn to other mighty ones. And now write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths so that the song is to me for a witness against the children of Israel. And I shall bring them to the land flowing with milk and honey of which I swore to their fathers, and they shall eat and be satisfied and be fat. Then they shall turn to other gods, and they shall serve them and scorn me and break my covenant. And it shall be, when many evils and distresses come upon them, that the song shall answer before them as a witness. For it is not to be forgotten in the mouths of their seed. For I know their thoughts which they are forming today, even before I bring them to the land which I swore to give to them. And Moshe wrote this song the same day, and taught it to the children of Israel. And he commanded Yehoshua the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you are to bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I myself am with you. 
And it came to be when Moses had completed writing the words of this Torah in a book until their completion, that Moshe commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, saying, Take this book of the Torah, and you shall place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem your God, and it shall be there as a witness against you. For I myself know your rebellion and your stiff neck. See, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against Hashem. Then how much more after my death? Assemble unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, so that I speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you shall do very corruptly, and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil shall come to you in the latter days, because you do what is evil in the eyes of Hashem, to provoke him through the works of your hands. So Moshe spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until their completion. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my instruction fall as rain, my speech drop down as dew, as fine rain on the tender plants, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of Hashem, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work, is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of truth and without unrighteousness. Righteous and straight is he. A twisted and crooked generation has corrupted itself. Their blemish? They are not his children. Do you do this to Hashem, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you, who created you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and let him show you, your elders and let them say to you, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man and set the boundaries of the people according to the numbers of the children of Israel. For the portion of Hashem is his people, Yaakov his allotted inheritance. He found him in a wilderness, in a wasted, howling desert he encompassed him. He made him understand and watched over him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, bearing them on its wings. Hashem alone led him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, and he ate the fruits of the field. And he made him to draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs and the rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. But Yesharun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick. You are covered with fat. So he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They moved him to jealousy with foreign matters. With abominations they provoked him. They slaughtered to demons, not God, mighty ones they did not know. New ones who came lately, which your fathers did not fear. You neglected the rock who brought you forth and forgot the God who fathered you. And Hashem saw and despised because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, Let me hide my face from them. Let me see what their end is, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no trusting. They made me jealous by what is not God. They provoked me with their worthless matters. But I make them jealous by those who are no people. I provoke them with a foolish nation. For a fire was kindled in my wrath and burns to the bottom of Sheol. And it consumes the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of mountains. I gather evils upon them. I use up my arrows upon them, wasted by famine and consumed by heat and bitter destruction, and the teeth of beasts I send upon them, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword bereaves from the outside and fear from within, both young man and maiden, nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I said, I should blow them away. I should make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. If I did not fear the enemy's taunt, lest their adversaries misunderstand, lest they say, Our hand is high, and Hashem has not done all this. For they are a nation lost to counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would consider their latter end. They would consider their latter end. How would one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them, and Hashem had given them up? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies are judges. Their vine is the vine of Sodom and their fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the fierce venom of cobras. 
Is it not stored up with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and repayment at the time their foot slips. For near is the day of their calamity, and the matters prepared are hastening to them. For Hashem judges his people and has compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining, shut up or at large, and he shall say, Where are their gods, the rock in whom they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them arise and help you. Let it be a hiding place for you. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. I put to death and I make alive. I have wounded and I heal, and from my hand no one delivers. For I lift my hand to the heavens and shall say, As I live forever, if I have sharpened my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I shall return vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword devours flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired enemy chiefs, O nations, acclaim his people. For he avenges the blood of his servants and returns vengeance to his adversaries, and shall pardon his land, his people. Then Moshe came with Hosea the son of Nun and spoke all the words of the song in the hearing of the people. And when Moshe ended speaking all the words to all Israel, he said to them, Set your heart on all the words in which I warn you today, so that you command your children to guard to do all the words of this Torah. For it is not a worthless word for you, because it is your life, and by this word you prolong your days on the soil which you pass over the Jordan to possess. Last week, we broke in an awkward place in the text, and this is a fact that I recognized last week, but I did it for a purpose. You see, every year when we go through the Torah in the one-year cycle, and then even in the three-year cycle that I initially based these lessons on, the break in the Parshas begins at the end of chapter 31, and then the next Parsha begins at the beginning of chapter 32. Now, I find this to be unfortunate, as doing this, it creates a separation in the text, and it creates a separation in our own minds. The end of chapter 31 speaks of this song, and it tells us its purpose and what the people are to do with it. When we split in the traditional way, we separate the purpose of the use of the song from the text of the song. And so I wanted to rejoin these two things together into a single week and a single lesson, because this song is the foundation of so many other parts of Scripture, and it borrows from so many other parts of the Torah. It is quoted throughout both Hebrew scriptures and the apostolic scriptures in length. So first, let's look at what chapter 31 has to say about this song and its purpose. And it begins with a warning from God. Now, it's not a warning against idolatry. That is where this book began and is one of the most often repeated commands throughout the Torah. Do not bow to or worship or make any graven images or worship other gods. Rather, this warning is a warning of what the people will do. Regardless of the command, they will turn to idolatry. They will forsake Hashem and break His covenant. They will not remain faithful. And when that happens, the curses of the previous chapter will come to pass, and Hashem will forsake His people, and they will be consumed by the nations and sent into exile. All things that we've read before, uh, this time not as a warning, but rather it's made very clear that this is a certainty. Humans being humans will reject God and his ways and seek after those things that we spoke of earlier. Fleshly desires, pride, power, and fear. The fullness of these things will consume us without God. And in verse 19, we find that the song is introduced. Now, in the Christian tradition, this song is called the Song of Moses, but in the Hebrew, it is called simply Ha'azenu, or listen, or hear, or more literally, it means to give ear, and it's the first word of the song. Now, this word Ha'azenu is not to be confused with the Shema, which means to hearken, or to hear, and then to do something with what was heard. The word Shema is used in the song in parallel, so this word Ha'azenu is calling for a very similar response. But this particular word bears the idea of broadening your ear in order to allow more sound to enter. And this word comes from either ozen, which means ear, or azan, which means to weigh, test, and consider. And frankly, both are applicable in this situation. 
because it is the witness from last week that are called to give ear in the opening line of this song. Regardless, this song was to be taught to everyone in Israel. In fact, one could call it a command to teach this song to your children so that everyone knows this song. And yet, if you go through the traditional breakdowns of the 613 commands in whatever form you find them, this command to teach this song is not among any one of them. The 613 Jewish laws of the Torah, those check boxes and exacting compliance mindset of approaching the Torah, completely leaves out this command. Teaching this song to your children is not considered to be a command of Judaism. And yet, here in the pages of Deuteronomy, we read a command that was given by the mouth of God to learn it and to teach it. One has to wonder at this oversight. But I don't have any concept of why this might have been left out. There are possibly a half a dozen reasons that I can think of, and there are probably more. So just be aware of this if you are among the crowd of 613 law adherents. Moving on, what is the purpose of this song? Well, the song is to act as a witness against Israel. And when they enter the land and they forsake their God and the evil of the covenant begins to occur, this song will act as a witness to them to reveal to the people just why all of this death and destruction has come upon them. And again, it is repeated. This song is not to be forgotten in the mouths of Israel because Hashem knows the plans that the people are devising even now. Even at this high point of conquest and victory and achieving all that God has promised for so long, the hearts of Israel are contemplating turning from him. And how true is that of us, all of us as humans? We all like to think that we are committed and that we would never fail and that we would stay true to God and his word. But the fact is that when faced with plenty and ease, we are each tempted to stop relying on him. We are tempted to stop being as committed as we were in the beginning, as when we had nothing. Temptation comes along to do something that we know we shouldn't, and we fall into the struggle of the flesh and the spirit. Or alternatively, when faced with abject poverty or hardship, we cling to the good old days, the days of our oppression, when at least there was some comfort. For Israel, it was simple as leeks and cucumbers and melons. The good old days in Egypt and the promise of something enjoyable overcoming our senses and overwhelming us with desire for that rosy past. And so Moses taught Israel the words of the song, to act as a witness against the people, so that they will know when exile comes upon them the reason that Hashem is no longer providing protection. They will know their sin in that day. Then in verse 32, Moses once again commands Joshua to be strong and courageous, just as he did previously in this chapter. And then Moses writes down the words of this covenant in a book. Now this term, book of the covenant, it's something that's caused some disagreement among scholars as to just what text this entails. Is the book of the covenant the entire Torah, or is the book of the covenant the book of Deuteronomy? Now, I fall into the camp that this is the book of Deuteronomy alone that is termed the Book of the Covenant, as it is this document that outlines the suzerain vassal covenant between God and men. And in verse 26, we read of the final part of the suzerain vassal treaty. Who can name off the eight parts of the treaty? Anyone? Anyone? Well, there's the preamble, the historical prologue, laws, rules, and stipulations, the giving of tribute, blessings and curses, the witnesses, public readings, and the placing and depositing of the copies of the treaty. Now, in most situations, when this form of treaty was formed, it was between two kings. One king with more power, who would be the suzerain or the high king, and the other king as the vassal. And in this situation, the treaty copies would then be placed in the primary temple of the local, national, or citywide god. Both parties would have one copy of the treaty placed in the temple of their god, and then the various gods would then be tasked with enacting punishment for hidden infractions of the treaty, while public infractions would be dealt with in other ways, up to and including military action. But when you're making a covenant with God, and that god is also your national deity, then where do the two copies of the covenant go? Well, both copies go to the same place, the place of worship of that god. 
And that one God is then responsible for overseeing the terms of the covenant, which is why the witnesses are so important in this case, perhaps even more important than in other cases. Because without witnesses, there are only accusations. Now, we could easily turn on God and declare our own innocence. And so Hashem, in the course of the last two chapters, created witnesses. Now, last chapter, he called two witnesses that exist in a realm that is far beyond humans. The heavens and the earth were called as witnesses to the covenant, a topic that we covered in depth last week. This week, we read of two other witnesses, the song and the book of the covenant, two items that exist in the realms of men, these things that we can look to and discover our own failure to remain faithful. And then Moses speaks of his own knowledge of the stubbornness of the people. Not only did Hashem call the people out as forming evil purposes in their heart, even as they stand on the precipice of great victory, now Moses, their leader, does the same thing. And he says, essentially, you have been rebellious while I've been with you, speaking to God and speaking to you on behalf of God. And even while I was here, you were rebellious and have been rebellious. With an active voice in your ear reminding you of what you should do, you rebelled. But I am going away now, and with me no longer here, with the voice of God no longer quite so near to you, you will certainly become even more rebellious. So call to me all the leaders of the people, and let me summon the heavens and the earth as witnesses, so that all know that they have indeed heard the words of this song, and this song that tells of their own treachery and the end that awaits them when they go down this road. And thus begins Ha'azenu, the Song of Moses. Give ear, O heaven, and let me speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Heaven and earth called as witnesses to the song, which is to act as a witness for the people. And so we get the words of the song. Now, this song can be divided in several different ways. The most common way is to divide the song into five sections, each section with its own focus or underlying theme. Section one could be called the history of God and Israel, their election and formation with God as father and as rock. Uh, This section goes from verse one to verse nine. Section two could then be called the blessings of God and the treachery of Israel. In this section, the bounty of the land and the provision that God has provided are spoken of, and in response, Israel bucks and kicks off their God and begins to chase after other gods and their abominations. From verse 10 to 18, the text speaks of Israel forsaking their God, the rock of their salvation, the God who was father to them, the one who gave them the bounty of the land. Section 3 then contains the judgment of God the outpouring of his wrath on those who have proven themselves to be faithless, those who turned their back on him, their rightful king, and allied themselves with usurpers. From these people God hides his face, an idiom that means to remove his presence, and destruction then comes upon them. From verse 19 to 29 we read of this judgment, flaming arrows, famine, heat, destruction, foreign nations, beasts, and swords all of the curses that we read about in chapter 28. Next up in section 4, we read of the futility of the nations and their gods, the weakness of their gods to protect them when it came to the conquest and war in verse 30 through 38. Their rock is unstable and unable to protect them. Their good and desirable things such as their vine and grapes are really bitter and poisonous. And this people will come under Hashem's judgment one day, And in that day, their power will fail and their rock will be unable to protect them. Then finally, verse 39 through 43 speaks of the judgment that will come upon the nations for their own wickedness and treachery one day. Hashem will go to war with the nations and he will destroy them utterly. But his people, those who return to the covenant, will be pardoned. Now, this is simply a powerful description of the history of Israel. And yet there is a part of the song that has not even been completed to this day. God has not entered into judgment with the nations as a whole. And the entirety of the people of God have not yet found the path of pardon that is only found in Yeshua. But if we take the time to truly consider it, the song speaks to each one of us. Because which of us has not been chosen by Hashem to be part of his nation? 
Which of us have not been brought into his covenant of promise? Which of us has not been granted freedom and been cared for by Hashem? And yet how easy it is to look around for anything else besides him to satisfy our desires. How easily our attention wanes as we forsake time with him in exchange for money, entertainment, pleasure, or any other thing that consumes us. I'm not saying that these things are bad. Money in itself is not evil. Entertainment is not bad in many cases. Pleasure is great and wonderful and Hashem wants you to experience it. But if you haven't spent time with Hashem and instead you find yourself pursuing these other things, then they become evil. When they consume your time and your mental processes to the point where you spend no time with Hashem, but rather you're constantly chasing these other things, then you have in many ways forsaken Hashem. You have succumbed to the same driving forces of humanity as Israel in the wilderness. Instead, we must be purposeful in our relationship with Hashem. We must make time for Him, because if He doesn't get any time, then we have in action forsaken Him. We have forgotten Him, and we have replaced Him with a lesser God, the God of our own desire. Now, the song is truly powerful. It gets into our very hearts and it provides a warning, but it also provides a hope. Don't forget Hashem. Don't make the things of the nations your rock. Do not turn to the ways of the world as your means of support, because these things will not protect you when judgment comes. Their rock will sell you. Their rock is unstable. Their rock is perhaps shifting sand. The fact is that the song uses the word rock as descriptive term for God, whether theirs or ours, seven times. Four times it is applied to Hashem. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of truth and without unrighteousness. Righteous and upright is he. Or verse 15 But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick. You are covered with fat. So he forsook the God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. Or verse 18, you neglected the rock who brought you forth and forgot the God who fathered you. Or verse 31, their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies judge. On the other hand, the rock of the nations is described this way in verse 30. How would one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and Hashem had given them up? Or verse 37, and he shall say, Where are their mighty ones, the rock in whom they sought refuge? Or in verse 31, where their rock is not like our rock, which we read earlier. The rock of the enemies is a rock that is treacherous and provides no protection. And Deuteronomy 32 is the first time in Scripture that we find God described in this way. And with as often as Yeshua quotes Deuteronomy, I believe that Yeshua had this song in mind, when he told the following parable. Matthew seven twenty four through 27 Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and does them shall be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them shall be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains came down, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The man who built his house on a rock, a solid rock that is able to withstand the storm in the time of trial and persecution, a rock that protects as a firm foundation for building your life upon. And the sand, the thousands of smaller rocks and pebbles that the foolish man built his house on, Great was the fall of that house. And who is the rock in the story when interpreted through this lens? The rock is Hashem. And we find this reflected all throughout Scripture. First Samuel 2, 2. There was no one holy like Hashem, for there is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. Isaiah 44, 8. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not since made you hear and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not one. Habakkuk 1.12 Are you not from everlasting, O Hashem, my God, my Holy One? You do not die, O Hashem. You have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have established them for reproof. 
Psalm 18, 44 through 47. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their strongholds. Hashem lives and blessed is my rock and exalted is the God of my salvation, the God who avenges me, and he humbles the peoples under me. Or Psalm 95, 1. Come, let us sing to Hashem. Let us raise a shout to the rock of our salvation. And there are more. And in many cases, as we examine these verses in the context that surrounds them, in the text, we find ideas similar to Deuteronomy 32 are present in the text. The idea of witnesses and the uniqueness of God in Isaiah 44. The idea of judgment and reproof in Habakkuk. The idea of Hashem as the avenger and the foreign stronghold falling in Psalm 18. And the rock of our salvation in Psalm 95 and elsewhere. This imagery, when we see it, we are to recognize that it is speaking of Hashem as an unshakable refuge and shelter, one that will not fail in times of upheaval and destruction. This language calls us back to Deuteronomy 32 and this song. And this is one of the primary things that this song is attempting to impart on the people of Israel. Do not trust in the things around you and the ways that the nations live their lives. They do all sorts of detestable things, and when the time of trial and judgment comes, they will be completely unable to protect you. Your only hope will be found in the shelter of Hashem's wings. And in this song we find the depths of God's character revealed. God created Israel, and he is their father who bought and established, or made firm, Israel. And the sons of men were divided among the nations, and Jacob became Hashem's inheritance. While Israel was alone and helpless in a wilderness, in a waste, a howling desert, Jacob was found, and he was brought into covenant. Ephesians 2.12, For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua, unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once nations in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. This same principle applies today. We had no connection to God, and he chose us to become part of his kingdom. While we were still enemies, we have been brought near. While we were in bondage, he redeemed us and gave us a hope of more. As verse 11, as a bird stirs up its nest, so Hashem protects and raises his children on high, like a mother bird to her chick. And this is not the first time that we've seen this kind of language. It's this idea that's behind the word Pesach, the word that we traditionally associate with Passover. But this word does not mean to pass over as in to simply walk by. Rather, it means to hop from foot to foot as a bird does when protecting her young. In fact, the word Pesach is used in this exact same way in the following verse, Isaiah 31.5. Like hovering birds, so does Hashem of hosts protect Jerusalem, protecting and delivering, Pesaching and rescuing. In verse 15, we find an interesting name, the name Yeshurun. Now, this name is a pet name that Hashem has for Israel, and this name is found one other time outside of the book of Deuteronomy. And you know what? It is in Isaiah 44, a chapter that we visited earlier that spoke clearly of the rock that delivers in Israel as a witness. In fact, the entire chapter 44 of Isaiah speaks in similar language to Deuteronomy 32, and it covers many of the same themes. But this chapter of Isaiah is a chapter of hope for the people of Israel who are in exile, and it ends with calling out Cyrus as the one who would begin the resettling of Jerusalem and the temple. As we move on back to Deuteronomy 32, we find in verse 21 a reference to those who are not a people. This is a phrase that is used in the prophet Hosea to describe what Israel will become because of their idolatry. And again, in the two places in Hosea where this phrase is used, we find a message of hope. Hosea 1.9, and then he said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not a people, and I am not for you. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sands of the sea, which is not measured nor counted. And it shall be the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They shall be called 
you are the sons of the living God. Or Hosea 2.23, And I shall sow her for myself in the earth, and I shall have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I shall say to those who were not my people, You are my people, while they say, My God. This is a phrase that Peter echoes in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2, 9-10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for a possession, that you should proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained compassion, but now obtained compassion. Again, we find echoes of this song throughout the Bible. Israel taken into exile and made into a people who were indistinct from the nations that surrounded them but then called out of this state of being by Hashem and brought back into covenant and made into a people once again. Different words, but the same sentiment of Ephesians chapter 2. Once of the nations, but now a citizen of Israel. Once far off, but now a recipient of the covenants of promise. In verse 22 through 24, we read of this positive action that Hashem will take against his people. And once again, we read that he will gather evils against his people. He sets the mountains on fire, and he will use up his arrows on them. Psalm 18:14, And he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and much lightning, and confused them. And in verse 41, we read in my translation, His flashing sword. But the word used to describe this sword in this verse is a lightning sword. Both of these ideas of arrows and lightning in one verse of Psalm 18, which we read last week because of its own connection to this part of Deuteronomy. And if we were to do a search for this phrase, there are seven other psalms that use the same imagery of God's arrows being used in judgment. And we read of God's sword in many other places, and often his sword is associated with fire. But there are a few others that associate the sword of God with lightning. Ezekiel 21, 9-10, Son of man, prophesy, and you shall say, Thus said Hashem, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. It is sharpened to make a slaughter. It is polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice, my son, you have despised the rod, every stick. Or Ezekiel 21.15, I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, to melt the heart, and that the overthrown be many. Ah, it is made like lightning, keen for slaughter. In verse 27, we read of Hashem's own fear, one that's close to him and means something to him. A fear that if he were to wipe out Israel completely, then the people of the nations would look in without understanding and think that it was because Hashem was unable to save them that they perished. Now, this is the same argument that Moses used with Hashem on two occasions when Israel participated in an egregious sin. In Exodus 32 with the golden calf and in Numbers 14 when the people refused to enter the land the first time. In both cases, Hashem had proven himself and explained himself to the people clearly And in both cases, they did whatever the people wanted anyway. In both cases, Hashem threatens to wipe out Israel, and both times Moses makes the same plea. Do not do this for your name's sake. Doing this would ruin your reputation, which if we remember back to the book of Exodus, is a large part of God's name. And when we looked at the third command, we saw that this command speaks of bringing an inaccurate reputation to God by claiming to bear his name and then acting contrary to his character. And when we examine the parallels of the commandments, we recognize that the name of God is the only thing that can truly be stolen from him. God's name is the most important thing to him. Now, not his moniker, or what we call him, the sounds that pass our lips. Rather, his character, his reputation, authority, and everything else that his name entails. He protects his name, and the only reason that he did not wipe Israel out completely at any time is in order to protect his name from these accusations by the nations. Continuing on in verse 35, we read, Vengeance is mine, and I repay. A phrase that is repeated in the New Testament in several places. Romans 12, 18-21 If possible, on your part, be at peace with all men. Beloved, do not revenge yourselves, but give place to the wrath, for it has been written, Vengeance is mine, and I shall repay. Instead, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink, for in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
or Hebrews 10, 28-31, anyone who has disregarded the Torah of Moses dies without compassion on the witness of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think shall he deserve who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was set apart as common, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, and I shall repay, says Hashem. And again Hashem shall judge his people. It is fearsome to fall into the hands of a living God. In Romans, this verse is used to remind us that we are called to love and not to vengeance. We are to allow Hashem to take vengeance on those who wrong us. But in Hebrews, the author speaks of the judgment that is due to those who turn their back on their faith and treat the blood of Yeshua by which they had been sanctified as common. This holy blood that transfers holiness to others to then be treated as common. Well, there are two priests who we can look to as an example for the lengths that Hashem will go to in order to protect His holiness. Verse 39 then speaks of the ultimate sovereignty of Hashem in matters of life and death. I put to death and I bring life. I wound and I heal. No one delivers a person from my hand. Again, this idea is scattered throughout the Bible. 1 Samuel 2.6, Hashem puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. Isaiah 45, 5-7, I am Hashem and there is none else. There is no God besides me. I gird you, though you have not known me, so that they know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none but me. I am Hashem and there is none else. Forming light and creating darkness, making peace and creating evil. I, Hashem, do all these. Romans 14.9, For unto this Messiah died and rose and lived again to rule over both the dead and the living. Job 5.17-18 Look, blessed is the man who God does reprove. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he bruises, but he binds up. He smites, but his hands heal. And this is just a small sampling of the times that God is described by either himself or others as being the source of both ends of things that we consider opposites. These instances, they're all meant to reveal that God is the source of all things, and he is sovereign over all. In verse 43, Hashem calls himself the blood avenger for his people. This role is one that was common in the ancient Near East. There were no police or law enforcement, just as there was no standing military in Israel at the time. Instead, if a man was killed by another man, then there was a member of the family who would pick up the role of blood avenger. They would seek out the killer and then kill them in return. We catch glimpses of this in both Numbers and Deuteronomy in the instructions for the cities of refuge. But here it is Hashem that is claiming this role. I will avenge the innocent blood of my people. And in Revelation 6.10, the slain who are under the altar, they cry out for this vengeance to be carried out. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the beings of those having been slain for the word of God and for the witness which they had held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? And there was given to each one a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who would be killed as they were was completed. And finally, the very final verse, Hashem says that he will pardon his people and his land. This entire song has shown that the people of Hashem owe him everything. He gave honor to those who were without. He raised up Israel out of a dark and dismal place and made a nation out of him and gave him a great blessing in the land of Canaan. But the people they took that blessing and they used it as a veil to hide the source of that blessing. They grew fat in their plenty, and they grew in their own pride, and in their pride they decided that they could pursue things that God had forbidden. They decided that they didn't actually need God, because they didn't have any needs. This is a trap that is so easy to fall into. It's one that many famous preachers and even more believers have succumbed to. And when this happens, they come under some sort of judgment. But nearly every time it ends up damaging the name and the reputation of Hashem. And that is a thing that he says will not go unpunished in the Ten Commandments. And the people who do this, 
they are equated to having worshipped another god. And this is a warning that is repeated throughout Scripture. If you enter into covenant with Hashem, do not turn away from that because Hashem will not hold you guiltless. And Israel as a whole did this. They turned away from their covenant with Hashem. They treated His name and reputation as if it were nothing. And so Hashem, in turn, turned His back on them. But in the end, there is hope. There is pardon. There is forgiveness to those who repent. To those who, as David put it in Psalm 51, have a broken and contrite heart. Those who recognize the errors of their ways. And all of this brings up the question. The question that has long been asked. Can you lose your salvation? And these warnings that appear throughout Scripture, they seem to demonstrate that yes, you can in fact turn your back on Hashem and His covenants and choose to return to your old ways. But in the end, it is worse for you than if you had never entered into the covenant in the first place. But if you do this and then you recognize your sin and you repent of it, you can be pardoned and forgiven. Because if Hashem held every sin against us, then who could possibly stand in the end? No, rather, He knows we are human. He knows we are weak. He knows that we will fail. Which is why He provided His Son. An atoning sacrifice that could be offered once and then claimed by all who bring the sacrifice of humility and repentance. And as the song ends, Moses goes to Joshua and he ends with this. Set your heart on the words which you have heard today. I warn you, do all the words of this Torah, for this word it is not worthless, rather, it is life, and through it you will prolong your life. And so let me leave you with this. Set your heart on the words of this document, but don't put your faith in it. Put your faith in the one who gave us this document and then came and lived this word for us. His death was not worthless, just as this word is not worthless. He is your life and your length of days, and through him you can prolong your life into all eternity because He is the Creator of life. His Son, Yeshua, is the way of life, and life is the goal of all creation. So seek life in all that you do. Deresh Chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.